Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. I would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D. Follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at Pain D C. So glad to have you back with us for another episode of the podcast. And we're going to have a really great, timely, informative conversation today. And I've got a good person to join to add the appropriate context and color to it. We're going to talk about filibuster reform today, which has kind of become an issue du jour um, over the last few weeks, particularly down the home stretch of the presidential campaign. But as you guys know, I'm a Senate lifer. And so this is a a bit of a, a passion issue for me about the, you know, how how the Senate really and truly has changed so much in the 15 years since I started my career there. And like I said, I've got a great person joining us today to, you know, really help elevate that conversation. I'm joined by Ellie Zupnik. Ellie is a spokesperson for Fix Our Senate, which he's going to tell us about here in a moment. But uh, Ellie, thanks so much for joining the podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Um, You know, Ellie, you and I, I think in the pre-show, we're talking a little bit about just how our careers have intersected. And we actually um, certainly overlapped a few years during our time in the Senate and obviously in the Senate Democratic Caucus. I know you started your career with uh, Washington Senator Patty Murray in her press office around the same time that I was working for Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. And in the kind of pre-conversation, I think I was telling you how I've always fancied myself institutionalist. And for a long time, I, I resisted this talk of filibuster reform. Whenever, let's just say some of my maybe slightly more progressive friends would bring it up, I might kind of do the like needlehead, you know, Washington, D.C., uh, uh, you know, argument about the need for rules and the need for order and all of these things and maybe buying into some some. Um, some things that were sold to me over the years about the importance of the filibuster. But as I've educated myself more about it, I've really learned a lot about um, how that rule has been abused over the years. And I know you're a bit of an expert in that space. And I'd love for you to just talk to us a little bit off the top about the work you're doing with Fix Our Senate and kind of your general posture to the filibuster. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you again for having me on. So this I think it, it's interesting how you lay it out, how you lay out your own personal evolution on this. I think that is a, a great place to start because that is the, your evolution is the evolution that a lot of people have had on this issue over the past few years, especially. So just to pull it back a little bit and give some history, the important place to start is that the Senate was never intended to be a place that required 60 votes to move anything at all. When the Senate first began, when the framers first uh, instituted the Senate uh, in the Constitution, and they, they talked about it in the Federalist Papers, and they had debates about it at the Constitutional Convention. They very intentionally wanted to move away from the supermajority requirements that they had in the Articles of Confederation and in the Confederate Congress. So they they were intentionally moving to a system that could work, that wasn't gridlocked, that where a minority couldn't obstruct everything, toward a system that could work, where the federal government was able to implement policies, where there was actual uh, legislating being done and that they didn't see the, the gridlock that they faced in the prior years. So for a long time, the, uh, the word filibuster didn't even exist. There was, it was not, not applied to the Senate, not something that happened. There was, a, there was an ability for the Senate to cut off debate with just 50 votes, the same way the House had now. So the way this changed was in 1806, Aaron Burr 
in one of his last acts as vice president, which is also president of the Senate, just decided that he wanted to change the Senate rules in, as one of his last acts. He had a passion for dueling and he had a passion for Senate rules reform. So the way the story goes is that in his changing of the rules as one of his last acts before he was indicted for the murder of Hamilton in that duel, he accidentally left out of the new rules the ability to close debate, to shut off debate with 50 votes. So from 1806 through 1917, the Senate just had no ability to end debate. There was no cloture motion. There was no 60 vote threshold. There was no 67 vote threshold. There was nothing. So any senator could debate for as long as, I would say he or she, but it was only he at the time, as long as he wanted. So that changed in 1917 uh, when Wilson needed to pass, uh, he needed to get some more powers, resolutions passed. He ultimately needed to get the Treaty of Versailles passed in 1919. And he instituted what people in the Senate now know very well, what I'm sure you've heard about, Rule 22, which is the rule that that members can file cloture and cut off debate and end the ability to continue the discussion of the conversation and move to a vote at hand. In 1917, that was 67 votes or a two-thirds majority required. It wasn't actually 67 votes then before uh, some additional states were added, uh, but it became 67 votes after Alaska and Hawaii. And then uh, in 1975, that was pulled back to where it is now, 60 vote threshold. So that's some important context to just really, un for people to understand that despite what you hear from people like Senator McConnell and even some others, this the 60 vote thresholds, the current Senate rules were not something that was in the constitution. They're not something that came down from Sinai inscribed on tablets. <laughs> They're not sacrosanct. They are invent, they, are, they were constructions, they were ideas that met the moment uh, that were made by the men of the Senate, again, all men at the time, and that have changed over the years, that have evolved. Um, and then even in recent years, we have seen evolutions, although they have been more contentious. In 2013, after uh, Republicans had, what, what, right after you left the Senate for the, uh, at that time, you were in Senator Reid's office, so you know that as soon as uh, President Obama came into power in 2009, Republicans led by Mitch McConnell just were intent on obstructing everything he did. They strung him along on healthcare reform. They blocked his nominees. They wouldn't. They, they the threat of a filibuster wouldn't even allow Waxman Markey to come to the Senate because they knew it would be filibustered. They did everything they could, led by McConnell, to obstruct President Obama's agenda, which led Senator Reid in 2013 to take the common sense step of saying, "This cannot." This cannot be allowed to happen. It cannot be the case that a minority can simply shut down the government and not allow a majority to govern, to not allow the president of the United States to fill his cabinet. They were obstructing sub-cabinet level positions. They were obstructing judges. And Reed, Leader Reed took those common sense steps and made some... By the way, by the way Ellie, yeah. they, they were doing this so... And, and and I think you just you're you're really putting so much important stuff into the atmosphere here that I just want to I want to hinge on for a second. So, sure. you know, first, let, let's talk about kind of the, the timing that you talk about. So I started in, in, in Senator Reid's office in 2009 as you were in Senator Murray's office. We were both in communications, both young pups in the communications game. <laughs> and 
this was when President Obama, this was his first term in office, his first two years, um, where Democrats also controlled the Senate, where there were 60, there were 60 votes, um, including uh, an independent um, that caucused with the Democrats, if I have my math correct on that. And so essentially that is, I mean, that's as close as you're going to get to a supermajority in the modern you know, U.S. Senate, right? Like even That's Mitch right. McConnell in his heyday of Republicans over the last eight years, they have not been able to accomplish that. They they have not been able to get anywhere near that level of kind of unanimity, um, not just, you know, across caucus, but really even with his own caucus. Because most of that time he's had, you know, folks like Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins and folks like that that he's had to kind of coax in um, from from the middle. But again, just want to kind of hinge on a couple of things here. So those fir- that first two years of President Obama's term in office, Democrats were actually able to be very productive. And by productive, I mean, they were able to pass the ACA. But you were right to point out that they strung us along on the ACA. They took forever because Democrats actually wanted to have a bipartisan piece of legislation. And I remember very, very clearly, I'm sure you do as well, we spent a lot of time trying to get people like then-Senator Olympia Snow, uh, Senator Susan Collins. We tried to get um, other kind of you know moderate Republicans on board. We listened to moderates in our own caucus, people like Joe Lieberman and Ben Carson, former senator from Nebraska, folks like that, right? Uh, not Ben Carson, excuse me, Ben Nelson um, from, from Nebraska, folks like that. And so we we did all the kind of due diligence that you would do to try to lead kind of like a bipartisan coalition. Republicans refused to. Right. So McConnell said we're denying Obama anything, even when he was in the minority by 20 votes. Then when he actually was able to get to the majority or when he was able first to close the majority and then he was actually able to be the majority leader, he was able to put in place a program where they stopped everything. And by everything, I mean everything. That was the era of the sequester. That was the era of when um, when they were blocking every single judicial nominee of Barack Obama, no matter who they were, even if it was people that they supported in the past. The famous one is Cassandra Butts, who was a, a kind of a contemporary of Barack Obama, who went to law school with him, who literally that caucus filibustered until she died. She died yeah. while she was being filibustered. So I think it's just important. I know that that's a little bit labored, but I just think it's important to kind of really talk through the like chronology and the timeline of all of this about what you're saying, because really what you're saying is, is like Democrats kind of treated like the initial, let's just say escalation as a final step. That wasn't something that Harry Reid wanted to do. Harry Reid was very much somebody who believed in kind of Senate rules and form and et cetera. And he tried everything he could try to get Mitch McConnell to play ball with him. And he refused to. And so I I just want to put that back out there, but I didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought. And so look, I think the, the historical context that you're laying out is super important here. And so talk a little bit about kind of the places where this rule has been most impactful, I guess, in favor of conservatives, but I, you know, against the interests of the, the clear majority of Americans who disagree with their agenda. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and even to, to your point about what happened in 2009, just be, before I go there, one thing that I thought was striking was when, I don't know if you, you may remember this, right when, um, right when President Obama was trying to extend unemployment insurance in the heart of the crisis, 
they filibustered an extension of unemployment insurance for a month and they just would not let it pass. They were making families and workers deal with the uncertainty of not knowing if they were going to get to be able to put food on the table before they allowed the bill to finally come to a vote and it passed 98 to zero, which I think is such a clear example of how the filibuster was used to just simply obstruct and delay for the sake of obstruction and delay. No, uh, no agenda, no, no actual interest in public policy or good governing, just obstruction. It was just so political. It was just, literally just political obstruction. That's right. That's right. They wanted to take the wind out of the sails of President Obama's initial agenda. They wanted to, he was promising uh, relief to families and they wanted to try to make him break his promise. And that is a consistent theme. And that is why the filibuster is so dangerous because Mitch McConnell's innovation, what he learned, what he perfected in 2009 was this understanding that when there's a party that controls all of government, in that case, the, Dem the Democrats, they control the White House, the House, the Senate, and then the public blames that party when things don't go right. They don't blame the Senate minority, even if the minority has the, has the ability to obstruct everything. And that was McConnell's great innovation in politics is this idea that he didn't have to cooperate with the majority and they would get blamed. And he reaped, he reaped the benefits from that politically in 2010 when Republicans were able to make some gains, take the House, uh, and then ultimately he was able to take the Senate back because he, their core thesis is that government doesn't work, and they are able to use the filibuster to show that, to prove it, to make it not work. Well, let me make Democrats, an amendment. Let, let me yeah. make an amendment to that. Yes, it's government yeah. doesn't work, but for them, government doesn't work by design. They have no interest in government working, and so they purposely put people and things and obstacles in place to prevent government from working to prove out their thesis, right? So when the when the ACA rollout doesn't go the way that people may want it to go, most people don't realize that part of that is because Republicans did every single thing they could do to stymie the works of all of the things that needed to kind of happen along with that law being rolled out and all of the fixes that everybody with common sense knew that that law would have needed. Republicans had no desire to be partners on that because that wasn't in their political interest. So not only is it just something that they do, it's kind of like that's a governing philosophy of conservatives right. is government is bad and we need to do whatever we can do to prove out that thesis that government is bad. Yep, that is exactly right. And uh, and that, that, again, is why it is so important that if that the filibuster be taken up be removed as a weapon that they can use to obstruct from the minority because if voters choose in a, a different agenda if they if voters put democrats in charge of government they are looking to democrats and they are holding democrats accountable to deliver on their promises but if the governing majority has no ability to actually deliver because the minority simply obstructs then you know we, we are so far removed from an accountable good government that you know that we have major problems and that's where we find ourselves today um, but to get to get to your question at some of the ways that the filibuster has been used over the years, I think th this really speaks to a, a big moment uh, in recent conversation about this issue when President Obama spoke so eloquently at Representative Lewis's funeral and talked about the filibuster being a Jim Crow relic that if it is used to block progress on the, the kind of work that is needed to not just complete, not just build on the legacy of Representative Lewis, but to do the kind of things that we need as a country to restore our democracy and make sure voters have a, have a say and, and can be heard and are protected, he called explicitly for the elimination of the filibuster if 
those things are blocked. Ellie, how that's how would you would yeah. you would you say that that was kind of like a watershed moment in this entire in this story arc of kind of where we are, where now people are openly talking about getting rid of the filibuster, I think in a way a little bit more freely than maybe they have in the past. Would you call that a watershed moment? hundred percent. That, that was a major, that was, that was more than a watershed. That was a, a ground shaking moment to see president Obama, the, the still the most popular member of the democratic party, someone who represents the mainstream of the party talk at a funeral about a Senate procedure, which is not a common thing to hear. Not too many funerals have that, have Senate procedural talk, but to talk in such an eloquent way, connecting the dots between the lack of progress to the issues that Representative Lewis and civil rights leaders have fought so hard for, directly connected to the Senate rule that stands in the way of making that progress, that was, that was massive. And that really shifted the conversation even more in a massive way away from the fringes where it had been for years, where there were people working on this for a long time. They were considered to be you know, kind of on the fringes, you know, with pipe dreams and not being realistic about the Senate. But as, as we've seen McConnell's obstruction more and more, as we've seen people like President Obama speak about this in ways that connect with ordinary people and the things that they care about, the conversation has really shifted. And now it's it's become a truly a mainstream position where people like you, people like me, people like Senator Coons, uh, who are who are who do have over the years seen value in the filibuster and have seen. Uh, and do value the Senate as an institution and aren't looking to make radical changes that change the very nature of the Senate, they see that reforms have to be made because the status quo is just not working. It's, it's broken. I think that's absolutely right. And and Ellie, and again, this is uh, the Here Comes Payne podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. And we're joined this week by Ellie Zupnik, who is a spokesperson for Fix Our Senate. And I want to kind of use that, Ellie, to kind of just go into talking a little bit about the organization that you're working with now, Fix Our Senate, and about kind of the aims of the organization, obviously with the backdrop of everything that we just talked about here. Um, But I'd I'd love for you to just share a little bit about the formation of that organization, what it's all about, and the work that they're doing. And I do want to just kind of put out there as a disclaimer, um, you and I, um, I am am an advisor um, who's done some work to, to support fix our Senate, because as it's very clear here, I've very much aligned with the objectives of the organization. So just as kind of a proviso, like I have done um, some some work in support of the objectives of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And, and first of all, thank you for your all your support and help on this. You are, you are someone who, who understands this issue so well and has, is such a, a great communicator and helps us connect the dots on these things to so many different people. Um, fix our Senate, as you mentioned, is a coalition and a campaign that came together uh, around the start of the year to really shine a spotlight on how Mitch McConnell was breaking the Senate to make sure people understood all of the ways that he was standing up for special interests, making the Senate work for the wealthy and well-connected, but doing everything he could at every level to keep the voices of ordinary people out of the process and to stop anything from happening that would threaten his power or go against his ideological or partisan interests. So we saw you know, how we have been shining a spotlight and making sure people understood the ways that he's um, changed the rules himself to jam through Supreme Court nominees, how he's broken precedent, uh, even his own McConnell rule, the rule he named after himself. He was quick to, to change that as soon as it became in his interest. So we have spent a lot of time really 
building the case, uh, uh, we think the, the clear case that Mitch McConnell is a person who took advantage of a broken institution to do, to, to make the work, to just have the worst possible outcomes with that broken institution. And you know, we, we've seen awareness of this go up substantially. Uh, we've seen more and more people realize this. We've seen more and more senators say this, um, say this out loud, say this in public, which is not something you hear too often in the Senate, people criticizing the other side's leadership that way, but we've seen it happen more and more. And over the last couple of months, as especially as we've gotten deeper and deeper into this, the crisis of the Trump administration and, and the, the mayhem and dysfunction, and also the crisis of this pandemic and the subsequent economic devastation that President Trump's bungling has created, it has become clearer and clearer that people are going to be expecting big things next year. People are going to be expecting the Senate, the, the potential Biden administration, if they are elected, to deliver results and to, to actually make government once again work for people. And if the person who, the very person who broke the Senate and was a partner in the dysfunction, was a partner in the gridlock, the fighter for special interests, Mitch McConnell, is allowed to maintain his ability to continue that gridlock, even if voters reject him, then th th that is that idea has become so inconceivable to people that it is clear that something needs to happen. So the Fix Our Senate campaign is, we, we pull together a coalition of groups ranging from Indivisible to Working Families Party to the Brady campaign. We work very closely with groups like the Sunrise Movement and MoveOn.org and many others uh, across the, the political, uh, the, the left of center, uh, public citizen, common cause, people who are committed to the idea that the Senate needs to be fixed. And it's not because of a Senate rule or a procedure. Nobody cares about a Senate procedure. Nobody really should care about a Senate procedure in and of itself. It is about the issues that people do care about. Anyone who cares about the climate crisis should care about the Senate rule that is obstructing any possible progress on it. Anyone who cares about getting the DREAM Act over the finish line, which was something that was filibustered, should care about getting rid of that filibuster and letting it get over the finish line. We all saw what happened on background checks, something that had 90% support among the public. A bipartisan bill, Manchin Toomey, was filibustered and would have been signed into law. So anyone who cares about these things, we are working to help them connect the dots between the issues that they, advocates, activists, ordinary people across the country care about, and the Senate rule that could potentially threaten any possibility of restoring our democracy and making progress on these issues. Uh, and, and we're seeing, uh, I've been very encouraged and, and really excited about the response that we've been getting. People are, more and more people are understanding this, more and more people who had been a little resistant or a little reluctant or just a little bit nervous now see how necessary this is. And I feel really good that we're going into November in a fantastic place and uh, with ready, with people ready to make some good changes. Absolutely. I want to spend a little bit of time hovering a bit over kind of McConnell, and, and, and I want to do it in this way. You know, I think there's this false frame that gets set up a lot with McConnell and with Harry Reid. And, you know, there's kind of like a what's good for the goose is good for the gander type of um, frame that's set up where it's like, well, the only reason McConnell is doing all this is because Harry Reid accelerated this war, which is like 
again, it's ridiculous. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but I guess it might be helpful for the audience who may be a little bit less in the weeds on this stuff than you and I to kind of like identify like some key moments in like, let's say the last decade, kind of like the modern history of this, what is, you, you know, for lack of a better term, you just have to call it like a food fight um, here in Congress, right? I mean, I, I kind of think of, I think, you know, we, we go back to that Obama era, the first two years of Obama, where McConnell basically declared war on Obama's agenda. Then I kind of go to 2013 when Reid, in order to get judicial nominees that were, you know, like President Trump likes to talk about, like, oh, Barack Obama left all these, like, spaces open in the federal judiciary for me. Well, like, of course, Donald Trump is being disingenuous, which is, like, not a newsflash. But, like, the reason why those spots were left open is because Mitch McConnell prevented any of those seat, any of those judges to be like seated. I mean, I think he even prevented hearings on a good chunk of those, those judges as well. But like 2013 is another flashpoint. Then you go to in 2016 when McConnell basically went nuclear to, a, well, f- well, first he, he stopped Merrick Garland's nomination from moving forward. Uh, the Supreme court nominee that was put in place to replace judge Scalia more than seven months before election day. Okay, and then in 2017, when they were able to get Neil Gorsuch approved to the court, but they had to go nuclear and they had to break the filibuster rule, you know, for judicial nominees to do that. And then just I I just I want to make sure like that the audience has like a good sense of like what you see as the key flashpoints in that procession. I know I named a couple of them, but feel free to surface any more that I might have missed. I think you just did a fantastic job of laying out a major points where it was abundantly clear that McConnell had no interest in respecting the rules as they stood, no interest in maintaining Senate norms. I think one thing that we see over and over from McConnell is anytime Democrats want to make a change, he is all of a sudden the world's greatest institutionalist. He is a man of principle who, who cares passionately about the rules as they currently exist. Any time that his power is threatened, any time that he wants to get something done that he can't under the current rules, he flips seamlessly and without shame. He he flips right to be a person who just changes the rules. He doesn't make he doesn't he doesn't seem to have any compunctions about it. He doesn't seem to care that people can point out the hypocrisy of him doing the very opposite of what he said he was he thought was right when Democrats were trying to do that. So I think that is a clear pattern that that has made a big difference inside the Senate to members, among staff, people who just who, who nobody likes to be hoodwinked, nobody likes to be um, to be strung along. And hearing people, and, and this goes for for press too. And I know you and I both, you know, we we talk to to press a lot as, as part of our job. And and I've certainly noticed over the years. I'm interested in you have too. People press just not believing McConnell anymore. His credibility is shot. I mean, people, when he goes to the Senate floor and gives his typical earnest speech about how it would be so shocking and appalling if Democrats were to change the rules of the Senate next year, should he obstruct them, they look at that and they they see him right now violating a rule that he set for himself. They saw, as you just noted, just a few years ago, he changed the rules of the Senate to allow uh, a Supreme Court nominee to be confirmed with just a simple majority. They see he passes his tax cuts through reconciliation. He, you know, which is you know, both parties have used it, but it is something again that he is able to pass 
his his agenda through a simple majority and while saying that it would be absolutely wrong for Democrats to do that should they win. So this kind of hypocrisy and just shameless norm breaking and rule violation has like more, he he's not able to get away with it the way he used to. And that's been a big change. Yeah, I mean, look, one of my the banes of my existence is what I call McConnell worship Twitter which is where you have a lot of it is like former McConnell staffers. Um, I know Josh Holmes is one of them who I think was McConnell's chief um, for a number of years who, you know, they've created this like myth of like Mitch McConnell is like this wizard of the Senate, which is like, I mean, yeah, anybody can be a wizard if you're like actively like cheating and you're actively like, you know, literally circumventing the rules in order to work to your favor. I would also point out, too, and I think you got to this and what you were talking about, the things that he is doing this for. Like, you could even maybe sell me on Mitch McConnell, like, going above and beyond the kind of what's on paper if it was for something noble. Like, let's say, oh, I don't know if we were in a pandemic and there was a need to pass, like, relief for, you know, millions of Americans who are going broke you know, as we enter the holiday season, as we enter like the toughest part of the calendar um, for through no fault of their own and where they're waiting for Congress to pass something like, let's say if like he like circumvented the filibuster to do that, like I still think it would be wrong, but at least it would be like noble. Like there's nothing noble about the things that Mitch McConnell has broken the filibuster to do or rather that has broken Senate rules to do and has abused the filibuster to do, right? Like he's doing this for like tax giveaways for millionaires and for billionaires. He's doing this for like to steal, basically to steal two Supreme Court seats. I mean, we're in the middle of the week where Amy Coney Barrett, her nomination is before the Senate. Like that's a stolen seat, just like the seat that they stole with, uh, you know, Neil Gorsuch. Those are stolen seats. So what, what my sense of it is, is that, McConnell has not only mastered this and not only has he kind of abused these rules, these arcane rules, but he's done it to the benefit of people who don't need someone who's playing Robin Hood for them. Like the people that Mitch McConnell is standing up for don't need a champion. The people who actually need a champion are the ones getting screwed over. That's exactly right. And, and that, that that is such an important point. And it, it gets to this idea, you mentioned it before, I mentioned it before, that he is now able to, he oversees a Senate. He has shaped the Senate or warped the Senate to be a body where he can do the things that he cares most about for the people he cares most about. He can pass those tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans and biggest corporations with a simple majority. He can he can on extreme judges that will roll back any kind of progress that we've made, who will, who will, um, you know, who will, who will make rulings like we saw with Citizens United that called corporations that established that corporations were people uh, that stand up for corporations uh, against people. He, he can do that with a simple majority. He confirms those judges. And that by keeping, by fighting so hard to keep the filibuster in place for legislation, he is able to then maintain his ability to obstruct from the minority the things that would actually threaten those special interests and his own partisan and political interests. He is a passionate uh, opponent of any kind of campaign finance reform. That is one of his highest priorities is, is keeping money in politics and blocking any legislation uh, that, that would threaten that. You know, he, we, we saw that with McCain-Feingold. We've seen that over the years. That is, if he has three passions in life, it is cutting taxes for the rich, confirming judges, and fighting uh, any kind of good government or clean election 
getting money out of politics legislation. So by maintaining the filibuster, by passionately advocating for the for the legislative filibuster, even while getting rid of every other kind of obstruction to his agenda, he is able to maintain his ability to stop all of the things and to, to your point, protect the very people who don't need protecting, who are already doing well because of so many of the policies that he helped push, including those tax cuts. He is doing everything he can to protect them, to make sure that they can maintain uh, the status quo that benefits them and that the people who actually want change, the people who want government to work for workers, to expand access to healthcare, to, to finally tackle the climate crisis, to, to take money out of politics and, you know, and make sure that we can pass some common sense gun safety legislation. He is made, trying, doing everything he can to maintain his weapon that obstructs any progress on that front. And that's really what this is all about. Uh, this is about taking that weapon away, not to end bipartisanship, not to end bipartisan work, not to just, uh, it's not a, getting rid of the filibuster isn't a magic trick that lets you pass whatever you want. It just prevents McConnell from blocking everything. It allows the Senate to finally function. It allows them to govern and stop lurching from crisis to crisis the way we've seen over these years. And it's not, it's not a panacea, it's not everything, but it's something. And I think Senator Warren put this really well. Um, she, she did an event with us just a few weeks ago. Senator Warren, Senator Merkley, and, and activists, advocates across the country did a, an amazing live stream event. Um, we had over 200,000 people viewing. And she said that it is not that getting rid of the filibuster will fix everything. It's that without getting rid of the filibuster, we can fix nothing. And that is, I think, the most important point for people to remember. I think those are all very important points to bring up. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, presented by Hip Politics Network. And we are joined this week by Ellie Zupnik, who is speaking on behalf of Fix Our Senate, an advocacy organization that is talking about the um, harm, really, that the filibuster, um, which is a Senate rule that's pretty arcane that a lot of people um, really don't understand how that has um, really brought a lot of harm to so many millions of American families and the work he's doing to uh, reform that. Um, we are going to take a very quick break and then we're going to end our conversation with Ellie just talking a little bit about 2021 and beyond. Ellie talked earlier in our conversation about um, you know, kind of the changing tides around the politics around filibuster. Want to just dig a little bit deeper into that. Spend a couple of more minutes here. But this is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, and we'll be right back in just a second. And just like that, we're back. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, presented by Hip Politics Network joined for a very timely and um, really thought-provoking conversation today by Ellie Zupnik. Ellie is a spokesperson for Fix Our Senate, an advocacy group that is doing some work to reform the Senate filibuster rule. And we've had a really, I think, impactful, good conversation about the history of the filibuster, why it has kind of, um, you know, caused so much harm, specifically disproportionately to you know, populations of American citizens that need a champion. Um, the filibuster has really prevented that help from getting to them. And um, Ellie's been talking about his work with Fix Our Senate. We want to close out our conversation by talking a little bit about looking forward to, you know, obviously we're a few weeks out from Election Day. Um, we are curious to see what's going to happen here. Um, I think most folks who follow Ellie and I's politics 
know who we would like to win and who we would who we would like to be victorious um, after election day. But um, want to talk about kind of a scenario for filibuster reform in a potential Biden administration and what that might look like and also, frankly, what it might look like if Donald Trump wins. So, Ellie, you know, let me kind of jump to that. Um, first, look, I mean, obviously, look, we're both career Democrats. We're not surprising anybody here in who we are supportive of in this election. How do you think about kind of this election? What's going on here down the stretch with Biden v. Trump and the ramifications of that for the filibuster? I guess, let me start there. Sure. So, what, what people are seeing right now is as they tune into the to the campaign trails, they see what's happening in D.C. right now um, with the Supreme Court nomination and with the, the inability for McConnell and Republicans to pass COVID relief legislation. They are, they are seeing a real conversation about what the country should look like, what kind of policies should be enacted next year. They're hearing uh, Vice President Biden talk about his jobs plan, his economic growth plan, how he would re- respond to COVID, how he would do a better job. They're hearing him talk about his uh, his commitment to tackling the climate crisis and his uh, commitment to the Voting Rights Act and to taking steps to tackle police brutality, which is something that has really um, energized so many people over the, um, over the last few months since the murder of George Floyd. They are hearing a, a robust conversation and a robust agenda being laid out by Vice President Biden and Democrats across the country who are running for Senate, for House, uh, about what they would do next year. And when we all think about what that could look like, if in a world where if the stars align the right way and voters sweep Democrats into power on November 3rd and we have a government next year that is a Democratic White House, a Biden administration, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House, people are going to be expecting results. They're going to be, they have listened to what Democrats said. They have seen the chaos and dysfunction of the Trump years, and they will be excited about a return to a government that works. They will have just voted in, majorities of people would have just voted in that agenda, that government, and they want to see it implemented. So when you think about that and you think about how McConnell can use the filibuster to just slam the brakes on that. That is something that just that can't happen. So we, everyone knows that Vice President Biden is someone who has, who wants to work with the Republicans. He wants to do bipartisan deals. That, that, is, that is why he ran for office. That is, he wants to get things done. He wants to compromise. That is clear. We, we know that. We take him at his word. Uh, and that, that is a, that is a, uh, that is who he is and how he wants to govern. But what we have also seen is that there seems to be growing understanding, uh, and this is based on his public comments, that if it takes two to tango, and that if Republicans prove to be obstreperous, which is a word that all of us had to hit the dictionaries, or at least I had to hit the dictionary when he first said that, but if he said if Republicans prove to be obstreperous, then he is open to making the changes needed because he knows that there are big things that have to happen. And like we talked about before, this is, I think, what we are hearing from Vice President Biden and from so many others reflects just this growing understanding of the stakes right now and how much needs to get done next year. The country is in such a deep hole after four years of President Trump that there is just, there's no more, this is too high stakes. There's no more 
There's no room for Democrats to spend months and months and months allowing McConnell to string them along or obstruct them. Um, you mentioned you mentioned McConnell's aides before. One of his aides, um, former aides, Don Stewart, was recently quoted saying that if Biden would win, they would run the same playbook that they ran against President Obama to just use every tool at their disposal to obstruct. That's not something that people will stand for. It's not something that um, that Democrats should stand for because they have made commitments to people to actually make the country better. By the way, it's a, it's, a, it's a different standard, by the way, than even Democrats hold to ourselves. Like, look, last four years, Donald Trump has been president. Republicans have run things in Washington, D.C. But even before that, Democrats have actively tried to, like, co-govern with Mitch McConnell, right, as Senate Majority Leader. Sure. And even when before Speaker Pelosi retook the speakership, uh, I guess it was six years ago now or four years ago now, um, tried to work with Speaker Ryan and Speaker Banner before that. Like, Democrats, the, the, the reason why this is such a culture shock for Democrats is because Democrats kind of have an aversion to like breaking the rules and we typically like to work within like the guardrails and we, we don't like to color outside the lines on that stuff. And I'm really not trying to say that to sound Pollyannish. I'm actually kind of calling that out because I do think that is a cultural thing that like Democrats culturally want to promote rules and want to promote following rules. But lately, the last decade plus, we've kind of been playing with like one hand tied behind our back. Because we've been the only people who have been adhering to that. I mean, imagine if Nancy Pelosi, the first thing she did when she took the speakership was say, you know, the, you know two years ago was say, we're going to deny Donald Trump anything he wants, any, any victory, we're going to deny him. She did not say anything of the kind. She said, where the president wants to work together, we'll work with him. And where he wants to continue to do things that harm, you know, citizens, we're not going to stand by and support that. That's typically what happens. But I just want to underscore that point. Like, there's just a cultural difference in philosophy of like what it means to govern. That's right. That that I mean, we, we see that over and over. Like, what, one of my favorite examples of that. There are so many, but one of my favorite examples is that that every time that well, Democrats have have uh, instituted a rule called PAYGO. They did that a, a, a while ago when there was uh, significant concern about the deficit and debt. They just, they put in a rule in uh, the House and Senate that they would pay for legislation. Many people at the time and today think that that's a bad rule, that that's a bad idea, that there are times when you should be spending a whole lot more and that you worry about the deficit later, especially when interest rates are so low. Uh, I mean, that, that is what I personally believe, and I know and there are lots of economists who agree. But the reason I bring it up is that Republicans who claim to be the party of fiscal discipline, every time they get into power, they get rid of PAYGO because they want to pass tax cuts for the rich without paying for them. They want to put that tax cut on the credit card and force our force future generations to pay for it. They, their fiscal discipline, what they call their fiscal, uh, their, their concern for the fiscal state of the country disappears. They get rid of PAYGO. When Democrats win, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, reinstituted it. She was willing to tie her own hands, because, agree with her or not, to your exact point. She had a principle that she thought was important and that she held herself to it just like she held Republicans to it. And you just do not see that reciprocated in any way. And we have um, no reason yeah. to believe that that's going to change in a, in a governing scenario where Democrats 
are kind of leading things in Washington going forward. I'm, I'm mindful of your time here, Ellie. So let, let's jump to kind of the final part of our conversation about just like the, the horizon, what's on the horizon kind of, again, if let's say Biden wins and let's think about like that Senate caucus that look, there's a lot of people who probably are coming from the same direction that I talked about at the beginning of this conversation where you're kind of institutionalist, right? And you think of someone, you think of yourself as someone who wants to follow the rules of, as they are listed even if the history and the background is sorted. So what is your sense of kind of where particularly that Democratic caucus in the Senate is, the folks who would really be ground zero for changing these rules? And I'm thinking particularly about those folks like the Dick Durbins of the world, right? The Chris Coons of the world, the Joe Manchins, um, you know, folks like that who have historically been very apprehensive about doing things to change Senate rules when it is of political convenience. Yeah, I think this is something that you know, part of the reason why we want to have this conversation now and part of the reason why we're engaging with people across the country is because we know that if Democrats do win in November, the special interests and the big the, the lobbyists and the special interest groups with big money, Club for Growth and others are going to come in and they are going to immediately start spreading disinformation, misinformation, lying, doing everything they can to pressure the Senate to maintain the status quo. And we need to be ready to fight back. So I, I again, I have been very encouraged by what I have heard. I think people like uh, Senator Manchin have ex- explicitly said that they care about getting things done. Uh, someone like Senator Manchin is a great example of someone who has, over the years, valued the filibuster. He truly thinks that the filibuster is something that uh, promotes bipartisanship and consensus. Agree with him or disagree with him, that, that's been his position. But I, it seems from his public comments and from, from how he's talking about this that he understands that it is not his position that has changed, it is the filibuster that has changed. It is the filibuster that has now been abused and misused uh, in a way that was never intended, never the way the Senate worked. So, I mean, Ellie, what I'm hearing from these people is it seems like they're punting, right? So like when they're being asked this question and look, just, you know, let's just go between the lines here. We're commu- political communicators. Like the punt is where they won't say no, you know, we're going to protect the filibuster and they won't say no, we're going to um, get rid of the filibuster. They're punting. That's a win. I, I would imagine for an organization like yourself, right, that's trying to keep minds open on this. I think that's right. And I think it, it, it reflects the reality that they would prefer a world where Republicans worked with them and they, they can they, they should and, and will stay open to that. But it will immediately become clear that that is not the world we live in. And what they are saying is that they are open to fixing the Senate. They are open to reform if that proves to be true. We are quite confident that that will be true. We know that McConnell's not going to allow a minimum wage increase. He's not going to allow a Voting Rights Act that's going to protect voters that who he thinks are not going to be on his side. He's not going to allow any other kind of progress on climate crisis or expanding access to health care, making prescription drugs more affordable. We know he's going to be standing with a special interest. So we know that that obstreperousness is going to show its rear its ugly face quite quickly. And the fact that all of these institutionalists and moderate senators are out there saying they understand that too, and that they are willing to make some changes to help the Senate govern, I, I, like you said, like that, that is very encouraging. It's it's a much different place than the conversation's been, and I think that the circumstances warrant that. 
Ellie, by the way, next time you join us, we're going to spend a segment talking about Joe Biden in the Senate and talk and, and figuring out how to like decode and speak Joe Biden. Um, because you said, except, what was it? Exteporous? What, what did he say? Obstreperous. Yeah, <laughs> okay, he said that a couple of times. And we could do literally an entire hour on talking Joe Biden in the Senate. Um, the prospect yeah. of Joe Biden being president is something that I have to admit, I didn't see coming. 15 years ago, but I think I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about uh, right now as we enter the home stretch of this campaign. Um, Ellie, um, you've been awesome. Um, you've really provided a lot of great um, information here. Want to give you a second to just kind of talk a little bit about the latest work um, with uh, Fix Our Senate, maybe direct our audience to some places for some resources if they're interested or if there are any upcoming events that we might want to know about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so folks should go to fixoursenate.org. That's fixoursenate.org or on Twitter, uh, Fix Our Senate and Facebook as well. It's Fix Our Senate. Uh, what we started pushing with our September uh, 30th event that I mentioned before with Senator Warren, and Senator Merkley, uh, advocates across the country is this petition that is calling on the Senate to act. That is that we're starting to get around now. Folks can go to our website now and sign the petition. We're going to be dialing up that work. Uh, as soon as this, uh, as soon as we get past November, and there's going to be more conversations and more action steps that people can take to help their friends, neighbors, senators understand what is at stake and why we need to move quickly to fix the Senate and actually deliver results for the people across the country. That is great to know, and uh, I'm sure that the audience will follow you there, and I will be following the work. I'll continue to be um, being supportive from the outside, and I look forward to seeing. What's on the horizon for Fix Our Senate and what's on the horizon for filibuster reform? Ellie Zupnik, thank you so much again. It's a pleasure to talk with you and uh, we'll be following your work. Great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented again by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content. Would encourage you to check out there. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. And until we speak again, stay safe. Good luck. God bless. Talk to you soon.